If you're involved in a motorcycle accident, there's some things you should do and say, and some others that you shouldn't. By mixing those up, you'll completely change the outcome when dealing with your insurance companies down the road. Today, we have Matt Danielson, a rider and a lawyer from the Motorcycle Law Group. And Matt has extensive riding experience and even more experience when dealing with insurance companies and legal issues when it comes to motorcycling. Today, Matt will give you some inside tips on how to handle yourself in the unlikely event of a motorcycle accident. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. The following interview was originally recorded in January 2016. Danielson rode a motorcycle from the Atlantic to the Pacific in 43 hours and 56 minutes. He's also ridden all over the states and takes regular trips with his co-workers. Matt, who rides a Harley-Davidson road glide, is a lawyer for the Motorcycle Law Group in Richmond, Virginia. He's also a lobbyist for motorcycle riders' rights. I spoke with Matt from his office in Richmond, Virginia. Well, Matt, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start off, first of all, I know that all the, the people involved, at least that's what I read, all the people involved with the Motorcycle Law Group are riders themselves. Is that the case? It is. Uh, actually, you can't practice law here uh, if you don't ride. Um, wow. And And interestingly enough, uh, Tom and I were talking the other day, and we just realized that 
currently, while it's not a requirement, all of our staff rides too. Paralegal, secretaries, whole nine yards. I like that. So you go through all the work of becoming a lawyer and then you've got somebody telling you, no, no hang on a second, you're not qualified yet. <laughs> you got to get a bike license. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've had people talk to me about that before and I'm like, well, you're not hiring right now, but if we were, you, you, you do you ride? And they kind of look at you funny. What, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Well, I, I read uh, about how the firm got started and how um, Tom McGrath had, uh, I, I guess, uh, started out and got his things going. You want to just give us a quick rundown on that? Yeah. Um, it, interestingly enough, uh, Tom and my father, who was a private investigator, worked together when I was, you know, small. We're talking eight, nine years old. And uh, so Tom had been doing personal injury work uh, for years, and uh, he was a writer. And probably back in the 90s, early 90s, uh, he was approached by some motorcyclists in central Virginia. Uh, motorcyclists were not being allowed to use the HOV lanes. And, of course, that seemed kind of unfair. Um, and he went in and looked and found federal law that required it and uh, threatened Virginia with, with a lawsuit. Uh, they made an exemption for motorcycles. Uh, which I think is now an exemption everywhere in the country. Um, and that kind of spurred motorcyclists to start coming to him. Okay. There was really nobody who was just kind of focusing on motorcycles. And uh, soon he started doing more lobbying work at the General Assembly. Uh, soon most of his injury cases started being motorcyclists, and he started focusing the practice in on that. This is why I, I wanted to talk about the background because I want people to realize that we're not just speaking with a lawyer who happens to deal with, um, you know, motorcycle injury or something like that. There, there's a there's a deep set of roots here because you guys are heavily involved with lobbying for motorcyclist rights while you're not working on, on uh, law cases. Yes, um, we uh, we not only active in, in in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, but on the federal level as well through the Motorcycle Riders Foundation. Um, and, and through that organization, get the privilege of working with motorcyclists in states all over the country. Because if there's something going on in Oregon, trust me, it's going to make its way to the East Coast. Uh, and it's really helpful having, having those connections. Um, but Tom always had a philosophy that I have now picked up uh, and I've worked with and Liz and, and Chad do the same. And that is um, you could hire any lawyer. Motorcyclist gets in an accident, he can hire anybody. Um, I, I think having someone that rides certainly adds a dimension in, in, of uh, competence to your case when your lawyer knows what you've been through, uh, what certain situations require. Uh, but what we do is we take the legal fees that we – our legal fees, part of those go into lobbying efforts to better motorcycling not only in the states that we work but across the country. So we like to hope that by coming to us, you're also helping motorcycling uh, for everyone. Why would someone do that? I mean, it just seems kind of strange. You know, I mean, I think it says something about someone's love for, for whatever when you're taking a portion of your profits and putting them into something that's not making you any money. Oh, God, you sound like my dad because um, <laughs> he asks me that all the time. He's like, well, uh, now, you're flying out to South Dakota to sit down and talk to motorcyclists. How are you making any money from well, that? Well, that's I'm exactly like, uh, it. And you know. I mean, especially a, a lawyer. Your lawyers are supposed to be, you know, you're gung-ho people. You, you go and you make things happen and you make money doing it. And here you're giving it away. Well, uh, I'm not really – I guess you, that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is you're really not giving it away because um, – 
if motorcycling gets improved in, in, in North Carolina, well, it gets improved for me as well. Um, perfect example would be uh, the fights uh, on motorcycle-only checkpoints. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the – have you heard about the motorcycle-only well, checkpoint movement? Let's just talk about those before you tell the story. Tell what they are. Okay. Um, somebody uh, – they really – I want to say they started in New York. I could be wrong there, but that's when we really started hearing about them. And they were uh, like sobriety checkpoints, only they were set up for motorcyclists, only – not for drunk motorcyclists, but just checking motorcyclists, stopping only motorcyclists to check for things like, you know, exhausts, uh, helmets, equipment. Uh, heck, up in New York, they were even running through VIN numbers to see if people were on stolen motorcycles. Um, and then we started seeing them in Georgia. Uh, and a lot of these motorcycle-only checkpoints were being done with grant money from NHTSA, National Highway Transportation Safety Um and they were giving money for these checkpoints. Uh, so some states, North Carolina and Virginia, where I'm from, uh, you know, we found these extremely uh, – what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, discriminatory. And there's no reason to just stop motorcyclists. Um, and the, the really tipping point here in Virginia was during Rolling Thunder, they set one up. And so we worked with the st- with our state legislatures and got them banned in Virginia. Okay, and so under- so the problem with these is, I mean, they're 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 targeting motorcyclists. They're going just for what you ride. So in other words, the same thing could be Correct. said if they went for, uh, you know, red Datsuns or something like that. And and that that is somehow sort of a violation of our rights. Correct. I mean, look, the Supreme Court's made it clear that that checkpoints are okay. Um, but one of the there's there's certain rules, and one of those rules is the officers can't have discretion in who they're pulling over, um, and kind of singling out motorcyclists to just being stopped on a whim um, seemed one to be illegal, uh, two certainly discriminatory. Um, that's not you know I don't want to have to worry about getting stopped when I'm riding around the country, and um, here in the here in Virginia we got them declared illegal, but. If I ride to your state, what state? By the way, what state are you in? Uh, Canada. Okay, great. I ride to Canada, uh, which I have ridden to Canada. It's a beautiful place to ride. Um, so I ride to Canada. Once I get out of Virginia, I'm subject to being stopped at a bunch of other states. So, you know, working with the MRF, we just recently got passed in. Uh, and when I say we, motorcyclists, uh, not my firm necessarily, uh, but those of us who are working on it got language included in the latest highway bill that pulls federal funding for motorcycle-only checkpoints. Um, why put all that work into it to get back to the original question? Um, because it makes motorcycling better for everyone. And if you're a passionate motorcyclist, you want to make motorcycling better for yourself as well as everybody else that rides. Um, I'm going to guess you would be doing this radio show if uh, you weren't passionate about motorcycling. And I think one of the things to to think about here for everyone, this show is listened to around the world. So people in all different countries listen to it. But the thing is, anything that happens in one place and and it starts to become a a big thing, especially in the United States, and you were saying it it carries over from state to state, it'll carry over country to country because a lot of it is to do with population and and the way society evolves, right? And and that's why we're running these things. So it's, it's interesting to look at these problems when they pop up and consider that there very well may be a time, if it's not happening already, but there very well may be a time down the road this may be happening in your country, in your state, wherever you live. You are 100% correct. Uh, And that is why uh, actually the uh, Motorcycle Riders Foundation 
will send people over to the European conferences to see what's going on over there in Europe because it, it jumps across the pond real quick. What type of things do you run into most when it comes to dealing with motorcycle law? Um, some of the... There are several things that we end up running into. Um, one of the fights that we'll have quite often in a motorcycle accident is there will be a denial of liability. What I mean by that, the other side says, we're not at fault for this uh, because there was no contact between the two vehicles. Um, and you think about it, you're in a car, all right? You're riding down, someone turns in front of you, you hit the brakes and hope for the best. I mean, you got steel all around you, you got a seatbelt, the whole nine yards. Um, motorcyclists are taught to avoid the collision at all cost. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you, you do whatever you can to avoid being hit. So essentially what we find is the motorcyclist does everything they're supposed to do, and then someone tries to penalize them for it, which makes absolutely no sense. So we often have to have that fight. So sure, you, you have a vehicle coming at you, you, you swerve, it's a near miss, and you find yourself in the ditch with a, a broken fairing and, and some damaged parts. And they're going to say that uh, while you're on your own. Yeah, you know, there was no contact between our vehicles. You, you know, you you went down. Or the, well, and sometimes a motorcyclist does it to myself because I always love the, uh, well, I laid it down. And I'm always, I always tell them, no, you didn't. You crashed. You, mm-hmm. you're, you're not evil Knievel. You, <laughs> you grabbed all of the front brake and rear brake. And when you grabbed all of the front brake, that bike went down. You crashed. But and the reason you crashed is because you were forced to do what you did because of the other person, you're fine. And we can usually we can usually win that fight. So we run into that a lot. Um, some of the other things we run into are almost every jury pool I get, I'm going to have some people on it who have certain preconceived ideas about motorcyclists as being risk takers. Um, uh, some people believe that if you get hurt on a motorcycle, it's kind of your fault for being on the motorcycle to start with. There's still some feelings like that out there. So I always have to ferret those out to make sure that I can keep those people off of my jury. Some of the other issues we have come more from some of the typical types of injuries that we see in motorcycle cases. Um, For instance, we will see torn rotator cuffs, things such as that. Uh, that seems to be a common accident, and, and that's just because oftentimes the person gets separated from the motorcycle and they go down on the shoulder or something. Um, and uh, a lot of our folks tend to, you know, tend to be a little – try to be a little tougher. And so when the initial pains and aches go away, um, they realize this nagging in their shoulder and they – figure it's going to go away and figure it's going to go away. And then six to eight months down the road, they finally go to the doctor. It gets diagnosed at that point. And then the insurance company is saying, well, it wasn't diagnosed till six or eight months down the road. How do we know it's from the accident? And we have to have that fight. It's it's really interesting from my perspective anyway. What I see here is I think a lot of times people think about, you know, what is right and what is wrong and well, wait a second, it was their fault that this happened and they should have to pay. But what it comes down to really is everybody's protecting money. I mean you've got your in my yeah. mind, you've got your insurance companies who are protecting they do not want to pay out and they're gonna find every way they can. And really looking at it from a cold perspective, they're not they're not really looking at you sort of as a person, are they? You are 100% correct. Uh, you, you couldn't have stated that better. Um, when I was a prosecutor, um, 
there was almost no what we call discovery. Uh, the, the other side was very limited in what they got to learn. So if you're trying a case where someone can be executed or be put in prison for life, you actually don't have to tell them a whole lot. But in our civil system, there's massive amounts of discovery because we're talking about money now. That's really important. So um, I had a defense attorney uh, in, a, in a civil case. Uh, I had several cases with him, and he always in – in a mediation, he'll always come out and say to the, the plaintiff – I don't care what the truth is. I only care what a jury thinks the truth is. Hmm. And here's what I'm going to be able to do. So, yeah, it, it can get – and one of the biggest frustrations that I have, and you hit it right in the head, I'll have people saying to me, why aren't they just taking care of me? Don't they understand that my life has been changed? Don't they understand that – you know? I, I'm not going to be able to continue doing my job anymore because, as you can imagine, a lot of my clients are, you know, a lot of my clients are hardworking blue-collar workers. You know, I get a lot of mechanics. Um, I get a lot of folks that do uh, physical labor, and when they're not working, they're not getting paid. And when you got a broken leg or a torn rotator cuff or busted ribs, you're not out there doing those jobs, and they can't understand. It's because they have a very strong sense of right or wrong. They don't understand why. The other party's not stepping up and taking care of their responsibility. Well, it's because the other party is being controlled by the insurance company, and they kind of treat everyone like they jumped on the bus after the accident happened. So let's talk about what to do um, in the event of an accident, because I think this is really important. So give us the list. Give us the rundown on, on what should we do in an accident. Number one, my number one rule to people in an accident. Well, let's first of all, you get an accident. Um you want to do, obviously, self-check, make sure you're okay, see if you're hurt. One is if you can or you have a friend who can, get the names of any witnesses who were there at the accident. And the reason I say that, um, I also used, by the way, used to be a police officer. So I'm kind of familiar with this mindset. Uh, I'm a police officer. Uh, I, I, uh, y- y- you're a motorcyclist, uh, and the, there, there's, you know, John Doe, uh, turns left in front of you and John Doe, I walk up, there's three or four witnesses standing around and John Doe says, I didn't see him. I was taken left. I didn't see him in the police officer's mind. Boom. I got John Doe just admitted that he turned left in front of him. That's all I need for the ticket. I release all the witnesses because I got what I need. Because all I'm interested in doing my paperwork, getting the ticket written. So we get two years down the road in a civil claim, and John Doe is faced with the statement he made to the police officer. And he says, no, I didn't see him because he was speeding. I mean, he just flew right up over the hill, and I, I didn't have a chance to get out of the way at that point. So he's kind of changed his tune. Now I've lost all of those witnesses who could have said – no, the motorcycle wasn't speeding. And then the natural assumption is, I mean, I think for most people, is you think the police officer's there and they're going to get all the information and they're going to document the whole scene and you'll just be able to, to afterwards say, well, can I see that file? And, and that'll have all the bits in there. So it's interesting to hear the perspective of, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that's what they're there for. They're, they're writing a ticket. They're not worrying about the lawsuit down the road. The, the, absolutely. Uh, they're there to uh, write the police report, um, issue the citation, uh, go to court, get the conviction, and then it's over. 
So a, many, many, many times we don't get uh, the names or addresses of any witness. We don't get photographs and we don't get anything like that. Let me ask you, though, for that one point, how serious of an accident need it be for us to start doing that? Um, I, I assume it's a serious accident. Um, I, it doesn't ha- do it for the, your simple fender bender. And here's why I tell you that, um, at the scene of an accident, there's adrenaline pumping. All right. Um, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're like I said, jacked up on adrenaline. Um, there may be certain things that are kind of sore, but you know, you don't really realize, you know, eh, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And it's not until the next morning, uh, the next day, the next couple days that you start realizing, man, you know, this knee, wow, it's popping. This is kind of strange. I wonder what's going on. And then it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And you finally go to the doctor and you get checked out and you got a torn meniscus. And now they got to go in and do orthopedic, they got to do orthoscopic surgery and clean your knee out. Well, at the scene of the accident, you had no idea you had a torn meniscus. As far as you knew, you're just a little sore. So it was a minor accident. Assume they're all major and, and do it in all cases. The other thing is make sure you go to the doctor, get checked out. I get too many people that don't go at all. Go and get checked out. Um, I, again, people think, you know, the lawyer's telling people to go to the doctor so that they can up their medical bills and it'll make their case worth more. No, that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because too often what happens is what we talked about earlier. Um, the, if, if you don't go to the doctor and then it's, you know, several months to go down the road and that's when you're like, this isn't getting any better. I better go. The insurance company is going to start claiming that your injury is not from the accident. And they will take your medical records or lack thereof to try to prove that. And they will get a doctor to come to court to say, um, well, I'm looking at the records and he didn't start complaining of this until about six weeks out. So um, I don't see any way to tell that this is related to the accident. And if it's not related to the accident, they don't have to pay. So um, I tell people, go to the doctor, not to inflate your damages, meaning not to make your case worth more, but do it so you keep good documentation um, because that's really one of the most important things. Um, I will tell you, though, my number one rule at the scene of an accident when I go out and give talks everywhere uh, and I tell people if they remember nothing else, remember this, and that is shut the hell up. Just don't talk. Don't you don't make any statements. Um, here in the United States, you are not required to give a statement to the police. You have a right to say nothing. The reason I say that is uh, go back to uh, to what we were talking about about adrenaline going during an accident. Uh, you're all jacked up. You may be in pain. Um, you're the worst person to give a statement about what occurred. And so when the police come and ask you what happened. Um, quite often the person that was in the accident gets things wrong. Okay. Why is that important? Let's say you're riding down the road, person turns left in front of you and the officer comes and asks you what happened and you're, you know, you're ticked off and that SOB wasn't paying attention and he turned left in front of me. How fast were you to go? And I was going 45 and it turns out you were in a 35 mile an hour zone. Well, in many States across the country, you've just admitted to speeding so you can be found partially at fault, even though the other person uh, caused the accident. You can be found partially at fault, which reduces the amount of the recovery you're entitled to. 
in some states in the United States, including mine, uh, it is reason to forfeit any recovery altogether. Um, so the mere act of speeding 10 miles an hour over the speed limit uh, can be enough to uh, require a jury uh, to award you nothing. And so what I find a lot of times when people say, how fast were you going? They're estimating anyway because they weren't staring at the speedometer at the time the accident took place. It is always best to say nothing at all. Um, what I always tell people is just you know, say, I'm a little shaken up. I'd like to go to the hospital. Uh, I'll be glad to speak, give a statement at a later time. Um, and don't be pushed into doing it. Uh, I tell people that feel free to give me a call. I don't charge for time. Uh, you know, people in my practice area, uh, I've even had people outside of my practice area call me. I'd be glad to talk to them about the facts of their case and let them know if they can talk to the police or not. But a lot of times making a statement at the scene of the accident, um, can really cost someone their entire claim just because they said something which may be wrong. And I like that what you said about estimating, because I think a lot of times when we're stressed about something like that, you just spew something out and you haven't really thought it through and thought, well, no, I couldn't have been doing 45 because I just pulled off the other light there. Um, so yeah, you can, you can really trip yourself up by, by just talking, but you also have, have specified in your article there about in particular that I, I was thinking in particular about making that statement to police where they want you to sign it or, or make the statement of what happened and, you, and, and they can push you for it. Um, and they will. Because they want to do their paperwork. Absolutely. They want to close this out. They, they, they want to get it done, do their paperwork, and move on to the next one. Um, and, and trust me, some people think, you're anti-law enforcement. No, I'm not. I was law enforcement. I was a police officer for three years. I was a prosecutor for 10. Um, so I have 13 years in law enforcement before I started doing this. I'm not anti-law enforcement, but I'm certainly pro-rider. And um, you shouldn't be bullied into doing something you're uncomfortable about. Uh, I had I wrote a wrote an article on on this very issue, and I had a police officer, <laughs> I had a police officer uh, shoot me an email, and he was really upset about the fact that I was telling people not to talk to the police, uh, and he said, "Well, I'm just going to make my decision based on what I have there. If you're not going to give a statement, I said, well, that's your prerogative. Fine, do that if you must." Um, I reminded him, however, that. One of the other things that I did at the time is I would – if a police officer was involved in a shooting, I would go out at no cost to the officer and sit and talk to him and let him give me a statement, which he had a right to talk to counsel prior to giving a statement to his department about what happened. And if a police officer can be afforded the right to reflect – and calm down and speak with somebody prior to giving a statement, then why shouldn't the citizen be afforded the same thing? And I never heard back from him. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with Matt Danielson and more information. We're also going to talk about fuel and the ethanol that's added to fuel and why it shouldn't be in there for motorcycles. So stick with us.
going to take a break just for a second and thank one of the sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today, and that's PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. It's a division of Puget Sound Safety, which is motorcycle training. PSSOR specializes in training for you, an adventure motorcyclist. And with adventure motorcycling, we're obviously riding much heavier bikes, in a lot of cases anyway. But even if you're riding a small bike, um, they train everything from little tiny bikes right on up to the big adventure bikes. And they've got a bunch of different ways to do it. Um, one of the ways they do it is a, is a sort of a classroom style where you're going to one spot and learning um, at that spot. In other words, one location. Another spot that I really like the sound of that's, that's really neat is their expedition training. And that's where you, they take you on one of the BDR routes or something like that. And you actually learn on a real adventure. That is very cool because you're going out and you're finding real world obstacles and you're overcoming them. And when you run into trouble, that's the the time to learn. That's when Brett and the and the trainers at PSSOR take those opportunities to teach you things about that. So a great way to learn. And let's face it, learning more about riding your motorcycle, I mean, we can all do that at any skill level. We, we can always advance. You can also get renters, rentals through them as well. You can arrange that. Drop by their website, www.psor.com. Look at their lineup for 2018. I think we're done for 17 now. They're already booking for 2018. So you want to be quick. Have a look at what they've got there. www.psor.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, definitely mention you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Do you know what the term body English is when it comes to motorcycles anyway? It's using your body to help your motorcycle change direction. In other words, by leaning your bike. So, you know, you're standing your pegs, you're pushing on one peg and letting off the other, or maybe you're leaning your bike over and you're putting a lot of weight on the outside peg to change your contact patch footprint. It makes a big difference when you're on a large adventure bike and even a small adventure bike. It's all controlled by the pegs when you get into the off-road situations where you're standing up. And when you're doing that, you think about it, your only contact point are those pegs. You want pegs that are extremely durable. You want pegs that will hold on. So in other words, your, your foot will connect with them and stay connected. And you want a big enough platform there that you can stand up and be confident. When you stand up on your bike, I mean, you, you should be fully supported by your pegs and have some stability there. And most stock pegs are not big enough. IMS has a full range of foot pegs available for you and I, and I'm running them on my bike now. I really, really like these pegs. I'm running the rally version of their pegs. They're all cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating, homogenizing, and annealing process. They're built in the USA. They're guaranteed for life. And IMS, IMS is a company that's been around for a long time now. I think it's from 1976 was the date they started. And they founded themselves on supplying equipment to racers. And racers, of course, are very demanding people. Well, they put that same quality into these foot pegs. You've got to see them to, to, uh, to really understand the quality. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Get a hold of them. Ask them the questions you need to ask about it. And do yourself a favor. Get yourself a good set of IMS foot pegs. And anytime you're talking to them, of course, mention Adventure Rider Radio. And now back to Matt Danielson from the Motorcycle Law Group. So we've got... We've got to get our names of witnesses. We've got keep our mouths shut. Don't talk until you've had time to to calm down, get checked, reflect, and and, and likely speak to someone. What else? Photographs. Um, if you can, if you can take them. If you are injured and you can't, have somebody else take them. Uh, but getting photographs 
can be very, very helpful. Um, especially when there is going to be a question over, you know, what lane did the accident take place in, uh, you know, what sort of damage there was. A, a lot of times we get the, you know, what lane did it take place in. And so getting photographs of the vehicles where they came to rest prior to them being moved can be very helpful. Um, getting picture of the debris, uh, parts of the motorcycle that came off in the crash or parts of the automobile that came off. Um, that can be helpful. Uh, now keep in mind, uh, the, the photographs have to have context. I will get people that will come up and, uh, take a photograph and here, here's a picture of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the foot peg. Yep. That's a foot peg. I have no idea where it's sitting, but that's definitely a foot peg. Get the pictures from away so I can see where is that foot peg sitting in relation to the other vehicles, the the roadway, and and so forth. Um, so, and nowadays with everyone having a camera in their phone, you know, it makes it easy. We used to tell people to carry those little disposable cameras, but now everyone's got cameras on their phone. So, you know, even even taking a video of the entire area can be very, very helpful. Well, that's exactly what brings me to this question that I'm just going to interject here is with cameras being so prolific, everyone's got one, but everyone's also connected to the internet. And I have seen plenty of look what just happened photos. How do you feel about that? How do I feel about them being posted on uh, social media? Um, Don't do it. Uh, As a matter of fact, as a general rule, don't talk about your accident on social media. If you just want to tell people I was in an accident going to the hospital, fine, but don't say anything past that. Um, because the big thing that, uh, the insurance company is doing now is they're trolling social media. They're looking for, when they get a, when they get a claim, they're going to start looking you up. They're going to find out what kind of things you're posting. So you may have a certain sense of humor that your friends understand, uh, but the insurance company doesn't necessarily understand it, and neither do the jurors who may one day be seeing those posts. Um, so if you're uh, joking around about the accident on social media uh, or making comments that makes it look like it was not as bad as actually it really was, that's going to be used against you. And you know, you may know what you mean or how you mean it when you post it, but you have no control over how somebody else takes it. Uh, so the best thing to do is stay off social media when it comes to your accident. And the fact is that, back to what we were talking about earlier, is that the insurance company, they're not there to look at this and say, hey, you know, that this guy seems like a good guy or this woman, she seems really cool, you know, and I, I get where she's coming from, where she's saying that she didn't really mean that. That's not what they're about. They're about trying to find ways to stop paying money. Absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at a deposition where they're taking my client's statement under oath and I'm doing the same to their insured. Um, and, and photographs are coming out from my client's social media that have nothing to do with the accident and they're being asked about them. Um, and I do the same thing when I get a, when I get a list of jurors, I know who my, uh, jury pool is going to be. I have a person here on my staff that immediately starts going through social media and getting me all the information they can on my jurors. Okay, mouth shut, photos, what's next? Actually, those are, uh, keep your mouth shut, photographs, getting names and addresses of any witnesses, making sure you get checked out by the doctor, and then the number five is call a trusted lawyer. I want to point out, I am not saying hire a lawyer, (laughs) but I am saying call a trusted attorney. 
uh, someone that's not going to charge you just to speak to you. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times people call me up and I tell them in the end, they don't really need to hire a lawyer. They're going to be okay to do this on their own. Of course, if they, if they want to, they can, but this is one that they can handle on their own. But it gives them someone to talk to, someone to go through everything, make sure that you're not missing anything. At least talk to somebody that you trust. Those are the five things I suggest to everybody. Now, this is sort of probably out of your, your comfort zone, possibly, but what about out-of-country accidents? I know that's a, it's a completely different thing, but let's say you, you know, you ride up to Canada or, or maybe, say, Mexico, and you find yourself in an accident. Do you have any suggestions for that? Well, do you mean let's assume that you went up and took a trip and rode the Cabot Trail and you were coming back and about 10 miles from the border of the United States, one of your buddies rear-ended you in Canada? That Does that happen? seem a little specific? <laughs> <laughs> this sounds more like a story than, than, a, than, a, than a suggestion here. Yeah, yes, it did happen, and I have the scars to prove it. Um, it was actually pretty funny. Uh, I'm getting ready to take off, and I, I kind of creeped up to look at the traffic and, and rob a guy who I ride with. All of a sudden, I just feel this impact. We both, I go over, and immediately from behind me, I hear, my bad. I turn around and there's, you know, Rob laying on the side of the road and I'm lying there. No one was really hurt. Uh, but that's a really good question. But you didn't sue him then? Um, no, but I certainly would have <laughs> had the need been there. Um, that, that would not have been a problem at all. One of the things to keep in mind when you're in another country is that your rules don't follow you necessarily into that other country. Uh, so I always tell my, my, my American friends here, never forget that the Constitution doesn't follow you across the border. Um, and one of the first things you want to make sure that you do, uh, if you're going to travel outside the country is contact your insurance company first, uh, and get a rider to go into that other country. Um, here in the United States, and I would imagine it would be the same in Canada. You have insurance on your bike. I'm sure it covers you in all the provinces of Canada. Um, but it's not necessarily going to cover you once you leave into another country. So when I went to do the trip to Nova Scotia and do the Cabot Trail, uh, I called my insurance company, let them know when I was leaving, let them know when I uh, um, expected to cross the border, when I expected to get back, and got a rider to take all my insurance coverages and uh, protect me while I was in Canada. Um, Jim has done several rides to Mexico, and he's done the same thing there. That benefits you by not only giving you that protection, but that pro you're going to get the same protection in from an insurance standpoint in the other country as you would in yours because that insurance policy is really a contract between you and your insurance company saying if X happens, you will do Y. Now, besides that, um, obviously, if you get uh, – from the standpoint of besides the insurance, you're now in another country and, and, and you've been in an accident. Um, I would highly suggest that you find out what your rights are in that country prior to riding there because you, you, you don't have the right to say no to law enforcement in many other countries. <laughs> in some, you're, abs you're under an absolute duty to, to talk to them. And the other problem is obviously it's kind of hard for you to give a statement and, and know what the legal impact of that statement is when you don't even understand what the laws of that country are. So definitely find out what they are. 
Because some countries have rules that make you guilty until you prove your innocence. I mean, so that uh, that is a completely different ball game than having something happen in the United States or even Canada. Uh, yes. Jim, my uh, my riding partner, he he really, really, really wants to ride all the way down through Argentina. And I'm going to guess, while I cannot say for sure, I'm going to guess that's going to take him through quite a few countries that don't have the same view of due process that the United States or Canada do. So I would certainly want to know what the rules are there. Because I couldn't imagine spending a bunch of time in a Bolivian jail. As a lawyer, does it does it make you a little paranoid? You know, you, when you the thought of doing something like that. I mean, if you were planning to go to South America, you're going down to Ushuaia. Would you get a little hung up on the fact that all these countries have different laws and actually go through the work of researching them, or would you sort of wing it? Um, no, I, I probably wouldn't just wing it. I would want to know what the general rules are going down there. I mean, actually, I do that. I suggest that to people when you're traveling through states. Um, when I went across country, uh, I went AMA website and I found out what are the rules of each state that I was passing through with regard to motorcycles. I wanted to know which states might I not be able to ride two abreast, which now I, I know by heart which states require helmets and which don't. So that wasn't an issue. But, you know, it's good to go on and find out. The other thing is, let's say there's a lot of motorcyclists that are also uh, concealed weapon carriers. Find out what the rules are about carrying a weapon through each state you go through. You guys at the Motorcycle Law Group have a a couple of interesting things there for riders, even if you don't have anything to do with an accident. One of them was the prepared rider kit, and the other is the app. Tell us about this rider kit to begin with. Um, The prepared rider kit was a way of giving people just kind of one place they could go to prepare for an accident, which sounds horrible. Um, and, and by that, you know, there's, it's a lot easier if you have everything together that you need, uh, prior to the accident happening, because after the accident happens is a real bad time to have to go around collecting everything. Um, and so we wanted to give people the information they needed, um, as well as, um, telling them what it is, what is the information they should gather and how should they prepare. Um, so if you go under our website, MotorcycleLawGroup.com, you can go to the Prepare Rider Kit, um, and it will give uh, um, certain documents that you can download, uh, give you uh, suggestions uh, of you know what information to pull together and who to share it with. So if something happens, that person uh, is able to, to help make certain decisions for you. I mean, let's face it. Um, a lot of times the people that are hiring us aren't the motorcyclists. It's the family of the motorcyclist because the motorcyclist is incapacitated. Um, they're recovering in the hospital. Um, and sometimes the motorcyclist isn't able to speak or make decisions for themselves. Uh, so it's always good to prepare to have a person designated who can do that for you. Uh, give them the information such as your health information, uh, your insurance information, the name of the attorney that you would like to be contacted if need be. And have all of those things in place before the accident takes place so that it, once it does happen, uh, then then your designee can get the, the ball rolling quickly for you. And Matt, that's exactly why we were interested in, in having you come on the show. I mean, we hope that, that no one who listens to this ever needs to speak with you. <laughs> but... It's when you have one of those things happen that you, in hindsight, you stand there and you think, oh, geez, I, I wish I had have done this. Well, hearing this and, and getting prepared in advance, um, at, at least even in a small way, can make a huge difference if the, you know, the unfortunate ever does happen. So I, I think it's really important. 
Uh, yeah, it, 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 I always tell people the same thing when I'm, when I'm at events and someone picks up my card or whatnot, I will tell them, look, glad you have it. Hope you don't need it. Nobody calls me when they're having a good day. Um, but, uh, but, but being prepared can make it so much easier. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that I've run into several times is the motorcyclist that gets in an accident and I'll have a loved one, be it girlfriend. Uh, I've even haven't had it happen with husbands and wives, uh, where they say, well, the first thing we need to do is get a power of attorney done, uh, because I need to be able to do certain things for him, like, you know, pay his bills, you know, make certain payments, be able to make certain decisions for him. Well, once the person's incapacitated, it's too late for that because a power attorney is something that one person gives to another freely. Uh, they, they, they say, Hey, if something ever happens to me, you now have the power to do X, Y, and Z for me. So my wife and I, uh, we have power of attorneys for each other at home. So if something happens, it's, a, it's done. I can act for her. She can act for me. I always got someone that can make decisions for me. And I highly suggest that everybody have a trusted person that can do that for them. Is that referred to as a living will as well? Um, the, technically they are two different things. Um, uh, but they can do the same thing. Um, uh, my power of attorney gives my wife the right also to make medical decisions for me, including life-ending decisions, if need be. Clearly something that, um, that is well worth thinking about in advance, although somewhat morbid. I mean, that sort of stuff always is. But, but it, you know, you hope you, you never have to deal with it. But like I say, getting it done in advance, I think, will make all the, all the difference. One of the other things on here, Matt, is um, the app, which I thought was really neat because we did talk about the fact that everyone has a camera. Everyone's carrying a phone, almost everyone. There's a, there's a few people I can think of that, that don't carry a phone with them all the time, but most people do. You guys at the Motorcycle Law Group, I guess it's just you or whether it's Tom McGrath or the whole group of you, have put together an app to have on your phone just for the, the, in the event of an accident. Correct. Um, kind of a one, 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 one stop place to be able to go, uh, and put the information that you need, be it putting in uh, witness information, storing photographs, uh, storing, uh, the, the, the types of documents you made, be it registration, health insurance card, that sort of thing. You can call a cab on it if you need be in order to get a ride home. You can call us directly at that point, um, whatever time it is. And, and, and trust me, people do that because if it's, uh, if it's uh, three in the morning and you get in an accident and uh, you hit that app and make the phone call and it goes to us and, and you leave a message, my cell phone rings next to my bed and I wake up and call you. I see a screenshot here from the app and, and the first thing is call us now, then call 911, an accident tip checklist. That could be really handy because there's something about when something goes wrong to be able to go to your paperwork or your checklist and say, okay, this is what I need to do. Oh, yeah. As you well know, it's one thing for someone to say, what do I need to do in, in casual conversation and be able to tick them right off. It's another thing to do it while you're, you know, your blood's pumping and they're taking you to the hospital and, and, and you know that you've got a fractured leg. Now what do I do? Just so for people will know on that app, it's called the MLG app, and it's downloadable for uh, Apple and Android devices. It certainly it seems is. like something that would be worthwhile just putting on your phone there because it's it's got it all lined up. And in the event that you do run into something and and uh, a problem, you've got it all at your fingertips. And it's free. Oh, yes, and it's free. I forgot to say that. Yep, that's right. 
I want to talk for a minute about your lobby work, the, the place where you waste your money um, in, in, the name, <laughs> in the name of other riders. <laughs> but there's some really interesting stuff in here that I think most people don't think about or don't realize that um, that is happening. And again, I want to remind people that, you know, this may be, you know, we may be talking about the United States here, but this stuff is, is something that you find uh, things in society, I think, break out at certain time periods. And like you, you'd mentioned as well. Well, I mean, if it's happening one place, it's going to happen or very likely could happen in your own backyard. And one of the things that you'd listed on, on something you wrote that, that I read was working to prevent motorcyclists from being excluded from public parking lots. I mean, I find that just shocking that, that those sorts of things go on. You'd mentioned the HOV. You also talk about, um, about going after ethanol blends. Give us a little rundown on some of those things that you've covered. Um, uh, you know, it, and real quick while I'm thinking of it, you know, see, it is the United States. Yes. Uh, however, uh, through the work with Motorcycle Riders Foundation, um, there's actually a woman I come across on a regular basis that represents Canadian motorcyclists kind of doing the same sort of lobbying stuff up there in Canada. And so she always comes down and shares what's going on in Canada with us and kind of picks up what's going on here. So that's always, that's always interesting. Um, you know, people don't think, uh, you, you, my, what I always hear people say is, you know, when are they going to do this or why did they do that? Or, you know, it's not just them. It's us sitting around and allowing them to do it. Um, and there's a lot of things that have gone on legislatively uh, by, you know, motorcyclists rolling up their sleeves and, and working at various state houses or working up the Capitol uh, to make riding better for for everyone. There uh, go to the go to the parking lot. The uh, Motorcycles being banned from parking lots and parking garages. That was being done on a routine basis here in many states. Um, here in Virginia, the state that I cover, we would have many public parking garages that motorcyclists couldn't go into. And uh, they couldn't go in there because the uh, the operators of the parking garages said it was dangerous because you know the, the bar might come down and hit the motorcyclists. Well, if you think about it, uh, motorcyclists pay their taxes to build these structures that are being operated and, and constructed with public funding, yet they're barred from it. And uh, we were able to get legislation passed that prohibited that. So if it is it is a parking lot, roadway, transportation uh, facility of any type that is either constructed or operated in any way with public money, then no law or regulation may be made that would prohibit motorcyclists from using it. Um, Which is bizarre, really, if you think about it. That's like saying, you know, motorcyclists can't use this road because the bridge is, is set up in a way that uh, motorcyclists could, you know, have a, have a problem crossing it, whatever the reason. Which is crazy because when it comes to designing these things, like you said about the, the parking lot, it's just a matter of someone saying, hey, you need to include this. Just like you need to include wheelchair access for things nowadays. It just has to be included in the design. It's not like it's something that, that is impossible. No, and actually we had that put into that statute. It said in, in, in designing and constructing new transportation facilities that they have to take in consideration motorcyclists in doing so. But it takes someone to get up and push for that because, like you said, it's, it's a lot of times it's people sitting back and thinking, well, okay, well, I won't worry about it. Let somebody else deal with it. But unless somebody does stand up and go in there and fight for those silly little things in some cases, I think, you end up pulling up one day and finding, oh, I'm not welcome here. Absolutely. Um, and it is so critical that it, it is critical to be up there 
what many people do think are silly little things, um, well, they're not. Because if you just let them pile up and let them pile up, they can seriously affect your ability to you know, ride freely throughout your community. The nice thing is by being up there for all these so-called silly little things, um, the legislature starts seeing you. You're working with them on a regular basis. They understand that you are there watching what they are doing. Um, and we've gotten to the point uh, here that if some constituent or someone comes to a legislator about passing a law that has anything to do with motorcycling, they actually call us. What do you think about this? Um, and, and, and get our opinion. Now, they don't do that because they're afraid of us, uh, but they do that because we've built relationships with them. We, we've been working up there so long that now they understand, hey, here's, here's some folks that know more about this than me. Let me go talk to them about it. Um, and it's just not motorcycling. I mean, you know, if someone comes to a legislator about a bill that has to do with medicine, then the people that they've been working with that, they're going to go to because they know more about it. But the key is staying up there, um, staying on top of the issues, be, and, and, and being in front of these legislators on a regular basis so that you can build those relationships to keep bad legislation from coming down and uh, to promote good legislation. It's really easy to sit back and say, well, I just want to ride. You know, I don't want to go through the hassle of chasing this stuff down. But I, I think it's so important that we do pay attention to what's going on and we do make our voices heard, especially nowadays. I think things I, as population increases, I'm not quite sure what it is, but that's sort of my feeling on it. As if population increases, there's more people pushing for their agenda. And it's not that they're doing something against us as riders or against anyone for that matter. It's just you go with your agenda. And unless someone comes and says, hey, you know, I'm over here, too, you don't really know they're there. No, and it, it, and I think you're right, and I think it goes that way for any segment. It just happened to be that my segment, the the, the one that I identify with, is is the motorcycling segment, and uh, you know, just like the, you know, the people that are interested in in, in in firearms, or the people that are interested in controlling firearms, and there's people who have every bit of interest. Mine happens to fall in, and the people I work with, uh, protecting the rights of motorcyclists and and our ability to continue to make choices for ourselves and ride free through uh, the United States. And actually, now that I'm working with Canadians, Canada. <laughs> One of the other things that I mentioned is about you working to prohibit the, the use of higher ethanol blends at the pump. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because I think this is something that, that um, isn't quite clear. I think a lot of people understand that ethanol is supposed to be bad for motorcycles, but they don't even understand why. Yeah. Um, here's what... Uh, um, you go fill up at the pumps. Um, probably everybody has seen the signs that say that you know gasoline can carry up to 10% ethanol. Uh, ethanol is a biofuel. It comes from corn. Um, the corn growers love ethanol. <laughs> um, and if you've ever ridden through the Midwest of Virginia, of the United, not, not Virginia, of, of the United States, we got a lot of corn. So uh, there has been a push in the interest of so-called the interest of, of uh, getting away from, from oil, um, increasing the use of ethanol. Uh, the problem is that uh, their ethanol, there are people that disagree with this, uh, but the Motorcycle uh, Council has come out and, 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 and agreed with this. Um, ethanol can be harmful to small engines. And the reason for that is that ethanol tends to retain moisture, so you can get more water. 
that can cause problems uh, for small engines. Um, so uh, there was a there is a push to actually, and the EPA had okayed moving the uh, from what's called E10, meaning fuel made with 10% ethanol, to E15, meaning 15% ethanol. That doesn't sound like a lot when you think about it that way, except think about it another way. They're talking about increasing the amount of ethanol in the fuel by 50%. And finally, the EPA even came out and agreed, okay, well, motorcycles can't use it. You're not allowed to put it in your, in your, in your motorcycle. Well, the problem there is um, how many people are really closely reading the pump when they pull up? <laughs> um, or even if you do that, you, you got a motorcycle that's got like a, what, a three-gallon tank. And he goes up, and I've just pumped a bunch of E15 into my into my car, into my into my truck, and you switch over. You're, you're reading your labels real carefully, and you switch over, and you stick the hose in um, and, and, and push the E10 button. Well, you're getting a good shot of your E15 in your tank prior to getting to your E10. Um, it's whatever's so in the hose from the absolutely from the, switch. Yep. The, resi- the, the the residual that's there, um, and and so the, the 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 MRF's position has continued to be that let's hold off on this until we understand the full effects of the higher ethanol blends uh, in 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 smaller engines, um, because I mean the, the EPA's answer, believe it or not, was really well we'll just make it illegal for you guys to use it in motorcycles which kind of seems like a dumb way of handling that. Um, when I was in Nebraska, I actually almost put E85 in my motorcycle. Wow. I didn't realize that they even had E85. I didn't realize they had E85 either until I stuck the hose in. And uh, Jeff Jeff Henney, who was riding with me, who at the time was the uh, lobbyist for the Motorcycle Riders Foundation, said, whoa, 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 dude, read. Look at that. And I turned around and said, <laughs> E85. I was like, holy crap, that probably wouldn't have done me any good. Well, and also, I mean, you know, it's going to come down to supply and demand. How many motorcycles are going into the gas station? Should they bother carrying the the lower grade or lower ethanol blend? Or will they just carry the higher one and say, oh, you can't fill up here? Well, uh, and, well, how about uh, you're riding across an area where there's just not a whole lot of uh, pumps and um, uh, you are low and there's only one gas station in the area and what, they all got high ethanol blends? So now you're restricted. I mean, what do you do? Either pump the higher ethanol blend in your bike or no fuel. So did you end up getting them to change that back and, and stay with the 10%? Um, no. Uh, this is an ongoing matter. Um, there, uh, there are several bills in Congress right now uh, that would halt the, the production of these higher blends until they can, uh, until they can be studied further. Um, there was at one point, uh, at one point the talk was from, um, Washington that the funding, uh, in order to create or to continue producing these higher blends, to continue giving subsidies to do it, uh, was going to be pulled, um, I don't believe that's the case anymore. So this is this is an ongoing struggle that we're having right now. Really, you're fighting against the ethanol producers, aren't you? I mean, they're in the business of producing it, and they want to produce more. Correct. 
Oh, uh, there are uh, – the corn producers will swear to you that uh, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that higher ethanol blends are bad for smaller engines. Um, you know, go back 40 years and slap uh, tobacco industry on their lapel and kind of get the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so with this, this – uh, the corn producers – pushing or the ethanol producers pushing to, to get uh, a higher percentage in there. Um, I understand that they're also subsidized by the government to produce ethanol. So you're sort of fighting the government in there as well. Correct. Absolutely. That's got to be quite a push. It can get, it, it, it can get difficult. And believe it or not, um, Washington, D.C. is not the easiest place to, um, uh, to, to, to start change. <laughs> I would never imagine that. I know. I know you find that shocking. <laughs> Do you know what effects the ethanol has? Can you, can you talk more about the actual effects that it's supposed to have on small engines? No. I, I, I'm actually, believe it or not, not the most mechanically inclined person in the world for loving bikes as much as I do. Uh, I always say that I, uh, I, I, however, I ride with people who are to mm -hmm. make sure that if something goes wrong, um, I, I'm, I'm taken care of. Um, what the, the, the folks that I have spoken with uh, tell me that a lot of it comes with the way that ethanol tends to retain and hold water and create uh, more of water buildup within the engine. Well, the website is MotorcycleLawGroup.com, and I think there's a the, that app is definitely worthwhile checking out, as is the uh, your your prepared rider kit. So I, I think it's worthwhile to to drop by, and I think your name and and your information is certainly good to have tucked in in a rider's wallet while they're out there. Matt, thanks very much for taking the time. Hey, thank you very much. And that was Matt Danielson from the Motorcycle Law Group in Richmond, Virginia. You can find them by looking for the MotorcycleLawGroup.com. And of course, check our show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. Hey, if you have any questions or you have some ideas for a show, you want to talk about something that's happened on the show, send us an email. Um, you know, we get emails all the time about this sort of stuff, and it's great. It's really nice to get the feedback and find out what you're thinking, and also the sort of things you like. If, you, if there's one particular thing you like, maybe you like tech stuff, maybe you like stories, let us know. It's always good to hear that sort of thing. Drop by the website 
website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And while I'm mentioning that website, that is where the show notes are for this episode. That is where the show notes are for all our episodes. Drop by and listen to any of the episodes for free. And of course, you can get them anywhere you get your podcast, whether it's iTunes or whether it's on Google Play. The list sort of goes on and on, as well as on Stitcher. We have another show called ARR Raw. comes out once a month. It's a lot of fun. It's a roundtable talk. Um, and it's about motorcycle travel. There's a whole group of travelers on there. So if you haven't checked that out already, drop by the website, click on the Raw button, and you'll be able to find that. And of course, that as well. Anywhere you find podcasts, you're going to be able to download that. Just one more thing before we wrap things up, and that's support for the show. If you like what we're doing and you want to help out, we could use your support. It's built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And, and I think it's really a good model because you get to listen to this. You get to see, does it add value? Do I like it? Do I enjoy listening to it every week? And then if you do, if you want to, and if you can, because if you can't, that's fine too. But if you can help out, then drop by the website and click on the support button and just give whatever you want, like whatever you think. I mean, I always like to say, think about it when you go to the coffee shop in the morning, you grab a cup of coffee and the enjoyment you get for that. And then think about the enjoyment you get from the show or the the interest you get from the show and, and do it accordingly. Anyway, that's uh, at the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Thanks very much. Hi, this is Mary McGee, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 